Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC, a cooperative R&D hub for the building industry. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. In upcoming episodes, we'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. Picture the building industry in your mind, and it's almost inevitable that you'll think of a building site. A building site in full flight is usually loud and pretty chaotic. There's stuff everywhere, trucks coming and going, and lots of people in high vis and hard hats. But the transformation of traditional building to industrialized building is also a move to some degree from the building site into the factory. As anyone who's spent some time on a building site would know, it makes a lot of sense to spend less time on site. It rains, things get lost, there's never enough space, and working conditions are often pretty poor. The idea here is pretty simple. Move as much as possible of building activity off-site to increase efficiency, reduce waste, improve quality, and importantly, provide good conditions for workers. Sounds simple, right? Not so fast. From what I have seen, setting up a factory is not a science, it's an art. It's also tricky because it involves expertise rarely found in the traditional building industry. So perhaps it's no surprise then that we look to countries like Japan and Sweden who have some of the most smooth running and well-organized industrial building factories in the world. Our guest today, Dr. Helena Littolo, is one such expert on building production strategy and operation. Today, we discuss the building blocks of a great production strategy. I first had the pleasure of meeting Helena in 2016 when a colleague and I visited her in Luleå in the far north of Sweden. And at that time, Helena had a joint appointment at Luleå Technical University, where she was associate professor, and at Lindbeck's Bug, a construction company specializing in industrial house building, where Helena was platform manager and later director of R&D. Our group returned to Lindbeck's again in 2017, and I distinctly recall Helena taking us on a tour of what was, at that time, the most advanced implementation of lean production principles that I'd ever seen applied to building production anywhere in the world, hands down. Since then, Helena has moved on, relocating to California at the beginning of 2022 to take up the role of CTO at Volumetric Building Companies to bring some of that Swedish knowledge and expertise, as we shall hear in the podcast, back to the United States. A couple of highlights for me in our interview were a discussion of the cyclic business model of building, what makes Sweden so special in the story of industrialized building, and onto the role that AI could play in building in the future. I hope you enjoy our interview as much as I did. I spoke with Helena while she was on holiday in Sweden in July 2023. Helena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matthew. Uh, Helena, as we heard in the introduction, you're CTO of the Volumetric Building Company, or VBC, and you've previously held roles at Lindbeck's and Lulio University. Just for listeners who've never come across Lindbeck's or Lulio, uh, perhaps you could just give us a quick overview of those organizations. Certainly. Uh, Lulio University of Technology is situated uh, two hours south of the Polar Circle, so we know uh, what it 
it's like to be in the cold winter. Uh, and Lulio University has a long tradition of working together with the industry. Uh, so ever since uh, the university started in the 70s, um, the university connection has been strong. Uh, and as part of that, uh, I worked on, in a research group uh, that um, interested ourselves in uh, industrialized housing. And uh, we built a pretty successful um, community around that uh, during the two first decades of the 2000s. And we went from two people to uh, more than 30 uh, surrounding this subject of industrialized construction and working with the companies. And um, as such, we have um, also had a lot of exchange and collaboration programs between academia and industry. And I was part of that too. Uh, so after uh, more than a decade in this environment, I was asked to join Lindbeck's Big. And Lindbeck's uh, Big is uh, the largest uh, industrialized housing producer uh, in the Nordics. Um, and they um, wanted me to start working with them uh, with R&D first. And I ad ended up as the VP of design. So I uh, was with the company for 12 years, um, working on um, setting up uh, the design team and expanding it from 21 people to 45 when I left. And uh, we uh, took on the task to serve not only one, but two factories um, in industrialized construction, uh, whereof the new factory in Holmen is one of the most uh, automated um, in the world and um, has a design capacity of 16 modules uh, per shift and um, setting up operations to support that um, facility was uh, fascinating and challenging. That's quite a journey into industrialized building. Moving now to your current role as CTO of uh, uh, VBC or volumetric building companies, what does that role involve and what was your mandate coming to that company? Uh, the role of CTO is uh, really about securing the technological development over time for VBC to make sure that uh, VBC has um, all the technology to build the modules it should, um, how they are constructed, but also not only how they are designed from a code compliance perspective, but foremost, so they are designed uh, for manufacturing and assembly. Uh, so me and my team work a lot with uh, production processes and um, manufacturing setups, factory organization and process improvement in conjunction with uh, defining and changing the product so um, we can have precise speed and output from our three facilities. That's an excellent segue, I guess, into the deeper dive parts of our conversation today, uh, which are around production. Now, I, I heard you talk in depth about production at Stanford in February, so I've had a bit of a head start perhaps than some of our audience here. Uh, and there's certainly many, many parts to production. And in a podcast of the length that we're doing today, Helena, we probably can't do them all justice. Uh, you know, we might talk about some of the things that you've just mentioned now, whether that's product market fit or the, the variation between um, standardized products or highly customized products, platforms, 
digital physical interactions, all of those things. But zooming in, I guess, on um, production strategy and um, uh, some of the things we 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 were just talking about, what do you think the building blocks of a great production strategy are? Well, I, first of all, uh, the production strategy does not live in a vacuum. Um, you, you can't have a production strategy that does not follow and support your business strategy. I see several companies actually fail on that point where you have, you might have production that's too standardized and you're selling something completely different. Uh, or the other way around, uh, you have production capacity that's very manual and uh, doesn't really um, have much of a standardization, but what you sell is highly standardized. Uh, both, both of them situations present a missed opportunity. So I, I would say the first building block is really a very good alignment with the business strategy. Um, and alignment with business isn't a constant. So that's the second part that I would have as a building block. Um, over years, and I, I observe this at Linbex and I do it now with UBC2, I can see that the production strategy has to be agile. Uh, so when we have market change, we have to respond in production. Uh, and I had a very good conversation with one of my colleagues at BBC where he said, oh, we're rebuilding uh, production all the time, reconfiguring, changing. Um, we, we will have to do that every month uh, to either improve, but also to uh, change your setup so it actually follows your business strategy. So I would say that uh, alignment being the first block and then uh, the continue, continuous uh, conversation being the second block that's important for production strategy. Now, once you have those two, uh, you would take a look at your product. It kind of always starts with what are you going to make and uh, what is the ramifications of that product? What does it look like? How is it deconstructed when you looked at it from a production standpoint? Uh, that would be my, my third block. And then uh, kind of the most interesting question that I also hear several forgetting is how, how fast do you want to go? And, and that's, another, that's another piece that's linked to business strategy. Um, if you tell me that I'm okay producing two modules every day or whatever that number might be, I know that I don't have to invest heavily in um, different types of equipment and uh, I can do this in a very um, modest way. Uh, but if you come and tell me that, look at this, I have a pipeline that's uh, such and such long, it's one and a half years long and we have to produce eight to 12, even 14 modules per day to be able to uh, fulfill the demand. Now that reflects back on my production strategy immediately and I need to set myself off up for success there. So my fourth component here is speed, uh, or needed speed in production. And that's also the most difficult one because it's always um, offbeat uh, with what actually happens in the market. So if you set yourself off up for uh, producing your 14 or 15 modules per day, you can be pretty sure that the market will then tell you, oh, I don't need that right now because now it's a downturn. And, uh, then you'll have to cope with that problem. So 
uh, it's a changing dynamic for sure. Helena, can I just dig a little deeper into that question? What what can one do when you have that mismatch between the strategy that's been set up and then the market forces that are acting independent of our best laid plans? Yes, yes, it's a very tough um, situation. Um, first of all, um, I think the, the number one thing is to be prepared for it. Um, this will always happen. So it's it's a foundational truth in construction that it's a cyclical business. Um, you, you only need to look at history to understand that it's always gone up and down. So, I mean, you, you shouldn't be unrealistically uh, poised when you're saying that, okay, uh, I will invest in the most fancy automated factory in the world um, and I will have consistent flow through it at all times. It is probably not going to be true. Um, so even when you're you're pondering your production strategy, this should be an element of the discussion because the context is, is exactly that. Um, and then uh, when you are in the situation where you know, you're facing this, that, oh my gosh, it's not going to work out, um, you have to be prepared to, to react swiftly. Your factory setup and production there is probably the most important uh, expensive component you have in your entire um, company uh, system. And um, it means that you will need to be a little bit brutal. So in a downturn, uh, you might have to consider, oh, I'm not going to run this full shift now. I might have to go to a half shift. Um, if I have several facilities, one of them would have to stand still. If I can bear it, I need to shed. Um, manufacturing equipment, those are those are harsh uh, decisions, um, but it's better to make them than to see your company slowly fade away because it can't really carry uh, the investment. Thanks for that. That 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 gives a really good outline of those big uh, building blocks, the foundation, if you like. Um, there's a lot of talk about platforms at the moment in the industry and many different types of platforms, both from a, a kind of product platform perspective, but also uh, what's broadly referred to as a platform ecosystem where different players are aligned across a, a common platform uh, and building production is uh, choreographed, if you like, across that platform. Uh, in the work that you've done both at Linbex and now at, at VBC, I'm just wondering, how do you view platforms and how essential are they to uh, a good production strategy? Yeah, the marriage between platform and the production strategies is obvious. Um, and I would say once again, that this has to do uh, a lot with scale. Uh, so let's, let's start there. Um, if you're a smaller company and you're doing... Um, business with uh, different customized um, projects and you see them changing over time and you you basically uh, take what you get into the business to keep it going and, and perhaps uh, growing. Um, you should realize that having a platform is an investment. Um, so the investment in having a platform, designing a platform, sustaining a platform, 
is something that carries a cost. And you need to make sure that you have return on investment on that cost. So that's kind of the first um, business decision that you make around the platform. So let's say then that you are in a position where your company is a little larger and you realize that your projects uh, have a lot of um, repeat uh, components in them. Uh, and you might even have set up your production strategy to, to make it so. So if your production strategy, for example, uh, contains either automated or semi-automated equipment that gives you certain parameters, those parameters definitely needs to be in the platform. So they become um, ramifications for the entire uh, business. Um, and I think one of the one of the largest mistakes I've seen when it comes to having a platform is that it sort of lives only in design. It becomes a, a number of templates that people keep uh, either in Revit or AutoCAD or whatever um, to repeat the designs over time. But real good platforms actually um, live outside of design and uh, have a representation also on the factory floor. So your uh, connection for the corners, if we imagine ourselves uh, producing modules right now, they are defined in design, but they are also um, defined in production. They are trained in production and you have a tool set up associated with it. Now, if you move further down stream inside your operations, you come to logistics and then you have made sure that this corner connection, of course, can sustain transportation and that you have uh, the correct amount of um, fixing space there to uh, handle your wrapping, for example. Uh, and if you come to site, then the same could be true if you have walkways or you have balconies. Now that's already designed into the structures. You don't have to think about that. And for, so for me, the, the platform um, is pulling right through um, all the different uh, groups and functions that you have within a company on the operations side. Uh, and it also is very, um, very well tied to the production strategy. They cannot really uh, exist without each other. Uh, so the internal conversation uh, between the two uh, is very strongly linked. Uh, and sometimes there are days when we think that they are one of the same. Does a platform, uh, sorry, let me back that up a little bit. When we talk today about platforms, uh, almost always uh, the comment that I hear back uh, from industry and, and or even lay people is that that's a digital platform. Do you see platforms as uh needing to be digital or do you see platforms as um uh, being better perhaps when they're digital handy tool uh to have um digital representation is a very good container uh and it also has the um, very nice feature that it uh, can keep versions uh, on your thoughts so so for me it's natural that a platform uh is digital is, the, is it needed? Uh, not really, actually. Uh, there were platforms before we, we knew what BIM really was. Uh, and uh, the templates that we built um, 
for example, for single family homes production in, in Sweden, where I come here in the 60s and 70s, they, they had never heard of Revit, um, but they still uh, kept the templates and um, made sure that we had repetition in whatever we did. Uh, so no, you don't need digitalization, but it's very, it's very convenient. Um, and I think one of the things that has happened uh, during the decades here is that um, the, the amount of information has increased to such a degree that it's difficult um, for a core group of people to keep everything of that uh, inside their heads. So it's just easy to build, uh, if you will, a memory uh, for the organization uh, and keep the uh, platform in there in, in a digital representation for everyone to access and share. Uh, rather than having it in, in uh, templates that are more manual. Moving to the side a little now, and particularly because I've got you here, um, I really enjoyed your historical reflections on the interactions between the USA and Sweden in the early 20th century, particularly around the emergence of what we might think of today as the earliest forms of industrialized house building. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that an interest in the Sweden-U.S. interaction, uh, actually because my great-grandmother was born in, in the U.S. Uh, and she immigrated back, if you will, from the U.S. to, um, to Sweden as a very young girl uh, and then gave birth to my grandfather. Uh, so it's a fascinating story. And for that reason, I kind of dive into my own area of expertise and see if there are traces that, um, that make sense. And, and yeah, it turns out that there is. Um, so there's always been a strong exchange between Sweden and U.S. as countries. Um, and it kind of started uh, during the late 1800s uh, when many Swedes actually had to, had to leave uh, our country. Uh, we had a famine um, and one third of our population decided to leave the country because we just couldn't sustain ourselves as farmers. Um, and that kind of started a, a long-standing relationship um, also industrially because this coincided with um, the 18, late 1800s being um, a very strong force in industrialization and people moving from the rural parts into the cities. So the urbanization uh, was very strong at the same time. So we had um, many people going across the Atlantic to see what the new world had to offer and the um, technological, uh, technological developments that was there. And then they brought it back home. Um, so one of those things were um, the invention of a module, uh, which is, um, was basically uh, an RV in the beginning, where you build a home inside the facility and uh, travel with it to site rather than uh, site directed. And um, Sweden had, uh, during the early 1900s, a very strong uh, shortage of housing. Uh, so the cities, uh, due to this urbanization, became crowded. And it became not only a problem of people not having space, but it also um, became a sanitary problem. So we had diseases starting and uh, because it was so uh, difficult to, to uh, contain all the people. 
So the uh, the government here took an interest, and uh, they started to um, organize template uh, housing uh, plans. Um, so there were there were drawings uh, how to construct a healthy home uh, that was issued uh, by our government to support uh, the notion that everyone should have a home to live in, and that home should be healthy and light and uh, have good sanitation. And now in the wake of a, of a national government supporting this type of, of movement, uh, the industry awakes. Um, so we had the early panelized industry here in Sweden came uh, just around uh, the closing of World War I. We were part of the World ex ex Exhibition that came uh, in 1924 when we presented this. And um, it became um, a strong pillar uh, in the industry here that we, as a country that has a lot of wood, there's a lot of forest in Sweden, uh, and we cut a lot of wood uh, during uh, the early 1900s. And now we figured out that we can build houses in factories. Uh, so that was very cool. And now the idea of modular uh, that was born in the US 1929 fit right into this. Uh, so when we had delegations from Sweden traveling over just prior to World, World War II, uh, we discovered that modular is a solution that we can probably implement in our country. Uh, now we had, of course, um, a, a war in the way there, but after World War II, um, this uh, rebuilding of the uh, country and the final solutions to our housing crisis uh, took hold. And uh, for us here, panelization and modularization became um, very strong components of our own um, history in uh, starting industrialization and construction. Uh, so it was actually uh, part of solving um, the, the one million homes deficit uh, that was here. Um, and you should remember then that we, we were lacking one million homes at a time when our population was 5 million. So you can understand that this was a really big crisis. Um, and the, the major result to that crisis was to employ uh, industrialization in construction. So it happened on the wood side, where we have panelized and modularized solutions. And it also happened on the prefab concrete side, um, where we have a lot of uh, prefab uh, paneling uh, happening. And all of this was supported by the, the pretty strong industrial um, culture that Sweden had from uh, having an economy that was untouched by World War II, uh, and then a very strong manufacturing culture around uh, large brands like Volvo and uh, Asia and Electrolux, um, who knew how to produce um, other things uh, and then just ventured into construction and helped solve it. So that's actually where, where our strong culture comes from. Uh, it was born uh, during the 1950s to 70s and um, it's, um, it's still remaining today. So just for our listeners, the One Million Homes uh, uh, program, that operated in which years, Helena? 
Um, it was a government decision, actually, to um, to organize a one million homes program, um, and it was from 1965 to 1975. And it was clearly stated that um, we will, during this time period of 10 years that we have uh, in front of us, uh, produce one million homes, uh, which then, on average, of course, is 100,000 homes a year. Um, one should remember that we were already producing uh, upwards of 90,000 a year, so we were well on, on our way. Uh, and the government um, decided to um, to support this effort then uh, with um, building codes that were very clear and at the time prescriptive uh, in terms of what solutions you should use to obtain this. Uh, and then they also uh, issued the possibility to get loans um, in terms of uh, constructing uh, buildings that followed uh, these uh, building codes. And uh, that type of interaction between uh, funding and, uh, and the rules set up around uh, construction has been, has been a theme uh, during the coming decades in more modern versions, of course. This was, this was very um, kind of clear that we are, we are only going to allow you to do certain things uh, and very prescriptive. They have since uh, since taken another stance, but at the time it was very effective. Yeah, I think it's a really it, it remains a really interesting um, proposition, uh, particularly for a Western democratic country as to how they can affect, uh, you know, such a, a large production strategy in a country. I mean, we were all, all, of course we saw something similar to that in the Eastern Bloc in Europe. Uh, with the rolls rollout of millions and millions of houses across the former USSR and and Eastern Bloc countries, mm. uh, we haven't seen anything like that uh, in recent times. I guess in the countries in the West, uh, but if the uh, housing crisis, which has seems to have spread across most countries, uh, or at least housing affordability crises, uh, are anything to go by, perhaps we'll see some. Some government involvement or or reinvolvement in that in that space to come is is that are you seeing anything of that nature in Sweden or in the U.S. at the moment, Helena? Um, I am I am not. I think the struggle there. Uh, well, we, should, we have to remember the time when this happened. This was was just after World War II. Much of Europe was non-existent. It was in ruins. So. It was very clear that something major had to be done. This is not something that the market forces will be able to handle themselves because there is not a functioning market. Uh, and similar things happen in Japan where the need for, for having a place to stay was, was overriding a lot of the, um, the economics uh, that's there around building a company and so forth. Um, so I think the... Um, as long as we are not in dire need, and dire need being um, a threat to humanity, um, I believe we will have um, the functioning market forces governing how our uh, housing is going to be uh, developed over time. Um, and the signals I'm seeing right now is that that is at par or lower uh, than what the market actually needs. Um, and I think it would need to be 
a crisis of some sort uh, that would uh, spring into action for governments. Um, if that crisis is um, our um, climate uh, crisis, uh, or if it is uh, a sanitary problem because of uh, crowded space or what it is, I, I don't know. Um, so clearly the One Million uh, Homes Project uh, gave Sweden uh, the impetus to really think a lot about industrialized building. Uh, and I think a lot about Sweden when I think about industrialized building. And I recently had one of your colleagues uh, on the podcast, uh, Jaka Lessing, who I know you know. And I would put a similar question to you, Helena, that I put to Jaka. And that's, I wonder if you ever reflect on your own position in the world. And by that, I mean, why do you think it is that Sweden leads the world in, well, I'm, I'm saying that, I, I'm saying that I think Sweden leads the world in the practice and research of industrialized house building. A, would you agree with that? And, and B, what is it about Sweden that means you are leading, if indeed you agree with that? First of all, um, that's uh, nice to hear from you. Um, well, um, I, I would guess you can say that we are leading uh, this um, this effort uh, in the sense that we have um, a high penetration of the methods. We have a very strong and viable ecosystem around industrialized housing. And we have um, we have been fortunate enough to be been through a few cycles. So so we've seen this develop and also been consistent around it uh, since just after uh, the Second World War. So it means that we have um, experience. I, I have companies here uh, in Sweden that has a history that's over 50 years in this business. And, and that's worth something when you, when you start looking at, um, well, for example, the happenings I've been reading around it. Uh, about in uh, the UK, where companies struggle to to have the business uh, sustained over time and so forth. Um, so yeah, uh, and the, the causes for us being in this situation, well, there um, there is there are a few things that Swedish culture uh, is is good at. Um, one of them is that we're um, we're pretty remote uh, in terms of where we are situated in the world, uh, which means that we are used to making stuff happen ourselves. Uh, no one will do it for us. And we're also pretty stubborn for that matter. Um, so when we have an idea, we really don't give up that easily the first or the second or maybe even the third time. Um, if we believe that the idea is is right, um, and you can take a look at uh, a company like uh, Volvo to take something that is is widely recognized, they were were extremely early uh, in the safety question. Um, they wanted people to to drive safely in cars, and it was even considered um, a little bit weird uh, that they mattered so much around that question and now uh when we're sitting here 2023 um i'm pretty sure that uh, many people connotate mobile uh directly with uh, safe driving and safe car um 
So it was a very kind of you know long-term strategy that they started there in the, in the 50s. And, and much the same with, with housing. Um, our climate uh, being um, in the northern, very northern parts of the developed world um, does not give us very good um, circumstances to build on site. Uh, but we still need a lot of dwellings. Uh, so it, it's natural for us to do it in the factory. Um, also, Sweden has one of the highest construction costs on site in uh, Europe, which means that everything that we can do, uh, which uh, will um, decrease that cost, is natural for us. And therefore, automation and going inside a factory just makes sense. Uh, there is a cost difference between having uh, construction workers on site as compared to having um, workers that uh, work in a factory. Uh, so, of course, there's a driver, you know. Yeah, that's very that's very comprehensive. I think um, there's obviously a, a lot of reasons that have coalesced to 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 make uh, Sweden or to keep Sweden in that position. I guess. Thinking about that, do you now see any other countries or even companies who can surpass, I think, what you and your colleagues have achieved in Sweden? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure over time that will happen. Um, I don't think that uh, we will keep a, a leading position for for uh, forever. Um, I can really now uh, already understand that Japan is probably ahead of us um, and just haven't been as open and outspoken uh, as we have been. That's another portion of the Swedish uh, culture is that we're so few on planet Earth, so we have no choice but to collaborate with all others. So it's been, it's been an endeavor that's also um, kind of revolved around openness. Uh, when I worked here in Sweden, I, I often had conversations with uh, competing companies um, around different types of issues. And uh, we were able to find a, a good uh, collaborative vibe uh, around questions that we knew were not uh, determining who got what project and how the business was run, but rather, okay, we have... Um, fire detailing issues, uh, shouldn't we sit down and resolve that together because we're too small to approach it uh, one by one. So this this type of co collaboration has also been part of that vibe and that has of course translated to research um, where that collaborative effort um, also has been, been you know, helpful in, in building our ecosystem. And I can testify for those listening that maybe have never had the pleasure of going to Sweden that the openness and collaboration of which Helena speaks is is indeed very, very true and something which I and my colleagues have profited from very many times. So it's been absolutely amazing. Um, Helena, moving to wrapping up now, um, obviously today in our conversation, we've focused a lot on production, strategic thinking, uh, the position of Sweden in this history and and how that's worked. I guess I am also keen to ask you what idea or technology or what knowledge in the building industry currently do you see as being undervalued or 
Or what do you think we could focus more on that's perhaps escaped the attention of people who really care about these things like you and I do? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so if I knew the answer, I would probably be rich. Uh, so I don't know the answer then. <laughs> um, well, that's the subtitle of this podcast, yeah. uh, Helena, is how to get rich quick. Yes. I think one of the one of the notions that we are still fiddling with, uh, but I I really can see um, how that could empower us is the AI and um, all that um, artificial intelligence development that's happening right now. I don't know that we have figured out uh, the true power of this, but I can see how how that can be very functional when you have a platform. Because platform offers something that AI needs. Uh, AI needs a training set uh, to function really well. It needs to understand what is the rule of this context, and now I can propose a solution for you. Uh, and I think a platform environment uh, with a clear production strategy really gives you that. Uh, so I'm... I'm very curious as to what will happen with that and how it can support our industry. Uh, and I'm that's that's where my head is at when I'm thinking about what will I do tomorrow in my my uh, homework. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great insight. Um, finally, uh, I feel like I can never properly end an episode of this podcast without asking what you think is coming down the pipeline in the building industry for the next five or 10 years. What does the future look like in your mind, Helena? Uh, I think the future looks um, pretty appealing uh, and bright. Uh, I mean, the basic, the basic uh, foundational things are there for a successful um, application of, of platforms and industrialized housing. And by that, I mean that we have many countries where we have a housing crisis or a housing deficit that's um, too much to be uh, just handled by normal operations. Uh, so that's a, a strong driving force to doing something. Um, there is also another crisis that that really bugs me, uh, and that's the the climate crisis and the challenges we face in having in knowing that my granddaughter might not have a world to live in um, that resembles the one I live in, uh, and that that greatly disturbs me as a person. Uh, but it also motivates me to be part of this industry because I know for a fact uh, that if you look at the carbon footprint, for example, on the modular home uh, that we're building inside the factory, it can be as much as 40% lower than what the industry standard is today. So for me, that's a strong driving force towards doing something at scale that really can address um, the housing crisis we have. So I also look forward to doing more diversification in this market space um, to be able to offer different types of business models when it comes to how do you buy um, buildings, dwellings, and homes, because 
there are uh, unexplored uh, areas here that could um, could be very beneficial uh, if we unlock uh, some of the communication that needs to to happen there. Um, I also want to see a development where um, prescriptive codes are amended with performance-based codes, codes, and we are able to innovate more in the space because the uh, the housing uh, demand that's there require us to offer many solutions. So sometimes when I speak to people, uh, they kind of shake their head and look at me and say, well, you're one of those who wants everything to look the same. And I, I'm very, you know, no, I really do not want that. But what I do want is a plethora of offerings from many companies. So you can um, you can get what you need for your site, uh, but you allow the companies to specialize in whatever they are uh, good at. Well, I think that's a, that's an excellent um, prognosis for the future, like achieving the scale that we we all believe that industrialized building can. Uh, investigating these new business models and new opportunities that are out there, uh, thinking differently about the way codes are used and regulation more generally to incentivize innovation, and then thinking more generally about how all of the different products we use can be uh, uh, can have greater variety to meet the needs of people uh, moving forward in a better way that's you know generous to the planet and to our climate. So... On that note, Helena, I, I would thank you for your time to, uh, today. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, for our listeners, uh, notes and references will be added online to the show notes. Thank you for listening. And thank you once again, Helena, for a, a really interesting discussion as always. Thank you so much, Matthew. It was a true pleasure.